Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 149 being recorded on Monday, October 25th, 2018. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg. And as usual, I'm here with your co-host and television spokesmodel, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason and Scott Show listeners. Uh, Yeah, yeah, I, I, uh, television spokesmodel. So here at the front of the show, I guess we'll we'll preface. It's been a couple weeks since we put a show out, so apologies to everybody. We have been just crazy busy. Uh, and what Jason's referencing there is, I did a small video for this NC State thing, and then it ended up being in a promotion that they air nationally, and a lot of people have seen it. So that's been fun. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. Um, so NC State has this this motto, which is "Think and Do." Uh, and I'm featured in there talking about Think and Do. And they, they literally are airing it like on ESPN during big games. Yeah, when the when the colleges, you know, when you watch college football, you always see usually during halftime, um, they get two spots that they can kind of do a promotional video about the university. Each university gets to do one. And this is the one they've been running for NC State. That's, it's totally awesome. I'm just saying it's my animated screensaver now. So just so you know. <laughs> it's a little creepy, but whatever floats your boat, Jason. <laughs> Not even the weirdest thing uh, about me. <laughs> Not even close. Um, another fun fact is we are both contributing to Forbes. You had a really good article where you you went through your Amazon Go store. Uh, no, the Four Star store, if I recall. Yeah, and you are like some fancier uh, CIO contributor, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah, the tech advisory board or some such. Um, and I am writing about Vehicle 2.0, which is a framework we've developed at Spiffy for thinking about the future of cars, uh, which seems like it wouldn't have anything to do about e-commerce, but uh, it's kind of interesting. The So first of all, you know, coming from the world of e-commerce, I feel like I have a unique perspective on how fast or how slow this vehicle stuff's going to go. And then second of all, uh, there are overlaps there. So for example, uh, you know, imagine autonomous vehicles delivering packages for folks. Yeah, for sure. And uh, I suspect uh, in the not too distant future, we'll be ordering a lot of packages from our vehicles and uh, in, in many cases, getting them delivered to our vehicles. Yeah. Yeah. So that's good. And then um, the in exciting car news. So uh, Tesla's new operating system came out. So that, that has been fun to play with and, for a lot of the folks that are in the same demographic as you and I, the most exciting part about the upgrade, uh, and this is the Tesla OS 9, is they have an Atari simulator in there as one of the new Easter eggs. So uh, you can't do this while you're driving. So full disclosure there, um, and, you know, sadly, but but I guess safely. Um, but it is a lot of fun to play on the touchscreen the various old Atari games. The, the most fun one probably is Missile Command because... Uh, you know, it's always super frustrating to have to deal with that trackball and you could never get fast from left to right and your little bases would get destroyed. So now you can kind of do a two finger thing and uh, it, it makes it a lot easier to save your bases finally. Uh, I am always jealous when you get a new upgrade because I just think that's the coolest thing that you're you go to bed and you wake up and your car has been upgraded. It makes me want to like go out and get a fancy new cup holder or something for my car. Yeah, you could uh, you could get a Tesla. You should. Uh, yeah. Uh, despite the fact that my wife and I have no commute and the car is almost exclusively used by our three-year-old. Sure. <laughs> cool. And then Jason, you've got a lot of, um, uh, stuff you're going to be doing here. I think, uh, either this week or next week, right? Yeah. The, the, this, uh, these next two weeks are super busy for me, uh, on the personal front. This is the busiest week of the year for me. Uh, tonight is my wife's birthday. Um, and so, uh, side note, uh, shout out to you, honey. Happy birthday. She most wanted to celebrate it by uh, having me catch up uh, with the podcast because she knew the listeners were frustrated with the, the gap we've had. And her main request for her birthday is 
she wants to go to the uh, Star Wars experience in uh, Orlando um, on a joint vacation with the Wingos. So we're going to have to, I think we're going to have to find a way to make that happen. Absolutely. That, uh, that is one birthday gift I'd be happy to, to help make happen. Exactly. And then uh, it's a crazy fertility week, apparently, in my family, because in addition to my wife's birthday, tomorrow is like my mother's birthday, my mother-in-law's birthday, and my father-in-law's birthday. Uh, so, so we're doing a lot of birthday celebrations this week. And then Sunday, I shoot out to Grocery Shop, which is this uh, new trade show in Las Vegas. This will be the first year mainly focused on um, digital disruption of the grocery category. Um, it's put on by the same folks that started Money 2020 and Shop Talk. Uh, and uh, I think they were hoping to get like a 1,000 attendees in this first year. And they actually sold out uh, the capacity of the venue at 2,200 people. Um, so it, it's shaping up to be a really good event. Uh, and I'm dramatically overexposed at the event. So Sunday night, um, I'll actually be doing the keynote interview with Ashley Buchanan, who's the chief merchant at Sam's Club. Uh, so I get to talk to him about uh, digital at Sam's, and we'll talk about uh, Scan and Go and some of the their partnership with Instacart and some of the other things they're doing. Uh, hopefully, I'll have some some moderately tough questions. Uh, I'm doing a panel on. Uh, you, uh, brands using product content to help build their brands. And so we've got uh, folks from the Boston Beer Company, which is like Sam's, uh, Sam Adams. Uh, we've got Chobani, which, you know, totally disrupted the the yogurt space. And we've got the Wonderful Company with the almonds and Palm Wonderful and Fiji Water and all that stuff. Uh, and then I'm doing a panel on the evolution of the CPG retail relationship. And we've got Constellation Brands, which is a uh, a big uh, house of brands in the alcohol space, uh, I think, has Corona amongst others. We have uh, Elf Beauty and then uh, Fairway Market, which is a, a, a great bespoke uh, grocery retailer in the New York City area. So uh, some topics that are near and dear to my house uh, heart, and I'm uh, looking forward to, to seeing everyone at Grocery Shop. And uh, I do plan, I know you're not going to be able to join us, so that always makes me sad, uh, but I do think we're going to get an opportunity to record a couple of shows from there with some of the the grocery uh, industry makers. Awesome. I think that next year they're going to have to rebrand this thing to Jason Talk or something like that because it seems like you're just doing everything there. Yeah, I think that was the, actually their original premise. Um, and then they found out like that the only four family members I could possibly get to attend were all celebrating their birthday. And so they decided to scrap it. Okay. Expand it to some other people. Exactly. In the uh, well, awesome. That that looks good. I look forward to seeing all the social media that comes out of that, and and hearing some of the interviews. Uh, any trip reports you want to catch us up on? I do. Uh, so we we've talked a lot about Amazon Go on this store uh, on the show, um, and we did talk after they opened the first Go store in Chicago. They have opened two other Go stores in Chicago, so now we have a a fleet of Go stores. And then uh, this week or uh, last Thursday. Uh, Google opened a pop-up show, uh, shop here in uh, in Chicago for the holidays. So Google has done pop-ups for several years, but they've always been in New York. Uh, this is their first year in Chicago, so I was eager to see uh, what that looked like, and I, I went and visited it this week, so we'll talk about that in just a minute. And then uh, they have announced their first permanent retail store in the U.S., and that is going to be in Chicago um, there's no official date on when that's opening yet. So we're, uh, continuing to, to watch for, for updates on that, but it'll be interesting to see what a permanent Google store looks like. Um, but the pop-up is really sort of, uh, very similar to past Google pop-ups. It's, it's focused on, uh, the Google hardware product. So the pixel three phone, uh, their new home hub, which is their, uh, voice assistant that has a screen built in. So sort of, competing with the uh, Amazon uh, Alexa show. Um, they, uh, you know, have a, a, a couple of cool accessories. Like they have a really smart uh, a wireless charger for the Pixel phones. Um, and so, you know, you go to the pop-up, they have all the products. Uh, they had them on launch day, uh, which, which is kind of cool. As the first place outside of Verizon, you could get the Pixel 3 phone. Um, and they set up a couple of fun vignettes to sort of demo the capabilities. So they have sort of a, uh, 
a fake record store you can go into and play music uh, using the the Alexa Assistant and their the their new high end uh, audio fidelity speaker. Uh, you can go into a tree house and uh, do a bunch of home automation stuff. So you can you know give commands to Google and and you know see the shades in the tree house go up and down or change the lighting or you know do different things. Um, and uh, they have a kitchen vignette. Uh, and in the kitchen vignette, you can, uh, they have a bunch of little Easter eggs. You can give commands and it'll like pop open a drawer with candy in it and some stuff like that. So, uh, some, some fun little vignettes to kind of get you experimenting with the Google products, but sort of in typical, um, pop-up shop fashion, uh, you know, it, it really felt more like some sort of museum exhibits where you could go in and try products rather than a working retail store, um, and, uh, you know, the it was a very sales-assisted experience. So, you know, there were more Google employees in the store than there were customers. Um, you know, if, if you were specifically looking to get hands on a Google product, it was a great opportunity to do that. Uh, but I'm not sure as a pure retail store, um, it was all that that interesting or, or worked particularly well. Um, and in my mind, the big change from previous Google pop-ups was just sort of the the visual treatment. So in the past, they've done these really kind of uh, techno treatments with a lot of like animated light things and fiber optics. And you kind of got a very sort of Tron feel from the, the Google pop-ups. And this Google pop-up was a much more sort of a vintage organic feel. So, you know, instead of a house, they had a tree house um, and they, uh, they don't sell these, although they should, they, they're like merchandising all of the the um the phones in these cool Google toolboxes that they made for the store. And so it was a very white, um, sort of organic store with a fake tree in the middle of it, and it was two stories. And uh so if you live in Chicago and you're interested in some Google products, totally worth worth checking it out. There are a couple features in the Pixel 3 that I'm super jealous of as a iPhone user. They have a dramatically improved new um spam uh, uh telephone spam uh filters which uh, i feel like i'm getting a lot more telephone spam so that seemed cool uh and they have a great new visual search built into the the camera um and uh incredible new low light features for the camera that seem to be uh class leading uh, awesome i don't want to um get you agitated but i am ambidivistress and my pixel 3 actually just arrived today and i'm going to crack it open after this podcast so i'll do a, a i'll do an unboxing next week and tell you about all the awesome features you're missing exciting i i probably will add one to the fleet too i i think uh it is going to be fun and if you haven't already gotten one scott i do suggest you get the the google pixel wireless charger um it's really smart and clever. Like unlike traditional wireless chargers, it recognizes each individual phone and you can have different settings for each phone. It basically turns the phone into a mini Google home hub. When you put the phone on the charger, it has a bunch of unique features that uh, uh, I feel like everyone else should have thought of, but Google was the first ones to implement. Awesome. I'll, I didn't know about that. So I appreciate that reco. Cool. Well, uh, that gets us caught up on kind of the personal side, and it wouldn't be a Jason and Scott show without. Amazon News. Your margin is their opportunity. Yeah, as Jason said at the top of the show, it's Thursday, October 25th, and after the market closed today, Amazon announced their third quarter earnings. And just kind of positional awareness, uh, if you've been listening to the podcast, uh, you know, we're setting up for holiday 18 and a lot of good stuff's going on. It's been a little, little kind of shaky here in the last couple of weeks. The stock market's gyrating a bit. Um, you know, this tariff kind of stuff is accelerating. We're going to talk about some things there later in the show uh, around some China impacts. So uh, for me, this is a really important uh, setup because this is kind of the, one of the last data points we're going to get going into holiday 18. Uh, and as a reminder for, for everybody, uh, we tend to think of e-commerce as baseline growing about 15%, 1.5. Overall, retail typically grows low single digits, so 4%, 5% kind of a thing. 
So with that being said, Amazon did announce their earnings and uh, it was kind of a mixed bag. So revenue was a little light and and I'll go into why, uh, but then profitability exceeded expectations. So um, as of the recording of the show, the the stock is down a tad uh, and uh, Jason will go into some details on that. So when you peel the the onion uh, on, on the top line, revenue came in at... Here, thirty uh, percent uh, year-over-year growth at fifty-six billion, um, and that was about one percent what the street was looking for. Uh, so uh, that one percent turns out to be about a uh, billion dollars. Uh, so what's a billion dollars between friends? Uh, and it was largely on the international side. Um, so Amazon, uh, you know, doesn't really give any details about things, but reading the tea leaves there, you know, it feels like there's there's some stuff going on. They did annualize some things like the souk acquisition, um, some changes they made in India. Um, but then also, you know, I think a lot of the Wall Street analysts are, are feeling like this is feeling some tariff impact. So uh, when an item is sold from China into the U.S., that counts as, let's see, I think it's where the seller is. So that, that counts as international GMV uh, and sales. So, so that could be Amazon feeling a little bit of the impact from the tariff wars that are going on. Digging into revenue a little bit more, when you look at North America and you take out just, when you just get the retail North America, so that's no cloud computing, uh, no Whole Foods, uh, it was up 25%. So, so again, to put this in perspective, Amazon overall grew about 30%. So twice the rate of e-commerce, even at its amazing, you know, huge 800 pound scale, uh, inter- uh, North America grew at 25%. Uh, and then... Uh, you know, international only grew about 15%, which was a pretty steep deceleration from last quarter's 27% growth. Uh, AWS continues to do really well. That grew 46%. Um, and uh, physical stores came in right uh, at expectations. Uh, one of the favorite things we like to talk about on the show is the advertising, um, and that continues to grow triple digits. So that grew 123% and is now $2.5 billion. Um, and you know, that, that just kind of looking at the trend over time, we'll put this in the show notes. So if you'll get Q1, uh, of 18, it grew 132%, Q2, 129%, Q3, 123%. So a little bit of a slowdown, but really just continues to be white hot. Uh, with that, I'll turn over to you, Jason, for some other highlights. Yeah, it's always hard to talk about a slowdown in growth when it's still over 100% growth. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's a first world problem for sure. Uh, but uh, it's, it was sort of a bifurcated story. Like I, the the revenue was a slight miss for the quarter, but earnings for the quarter were really strong. Um, so they were... Uh, uh, 2.8 billion uh, for the quarter, which is the their highest earnings ever. That means that's four straight quarters that they've earned over a billion dollars in profit. Um, hopefully that. But Amazon's not profitable, Jason. I was just gonna say, I hope I hope that finally puts to bed uh, the the silly myth that they're not profitable. Um, uh. That is wildly more profitable than they were just a short time ago. So that is like 10x their profit from a year ago. Um, And that earnings was a pretty solid beat on the market's expectations. So on the one hand, you go, man, they slightly missed revenue, but they blew away earnings. Uh, That should be a great story. Um, But then, you know, they gave their guidance for Q4, which was a little soft and disappointing to the market. And the ramification of that is this after hours trading, uh, their stock took a, a, a meaningful dip. So their stock was down 9% tonight. Um, if that holds tomorrow, uh, it is conceivable that Microsoft, which had a good earnings report yesterday, will uh, at least briefly pass Amazon as the second most valuable company. So uh, I'm not sure that says anything particularly negative about Amazon, but it, that's a pretty impressive uh, run for Microsoft uh, to to really get themselves in the mix there. Yeah, it, um, it, there is a little bit of overlap. So, so one of the reasons Microsoft's doing well is Azure, which is their competitor to AWS. Uh, you know, seems to be really doing well and and kind of staking out a, a definite second position and nudging out IBM and Google that were trying to get that, that second position behind Amazon. seems like, seems like it's pretty quickly becoming a two horse race between uh, Microsoft and Amazon. 
Yeah, and in general, Microsoft is still way behind in cloud, uh, but uh, as a result, able to grow much more quickly. And of course, in our category of retail, we're the one category where you know Amazon faces some headwinds, and there you know, there's a bunch of retailers that obviously don't want to use AWS, and there's some big powerful retailers like Walmart that really discourage their vendors from using AWS. So retail is one one uh, particularly lucrative category for Microsoft Azure. Yeah, on the um, on the marketplace side, uh, one of the metrics that, that Amazon does disclose is the percent of orders uh, or units that came from marketplace sellers. Last quarter, it was 53%, and it held steady at 53% again this quarter. Um, that one's been ticking up about 1% um, every quarter, uh, so interesting to see it kind of stabilize here at 53%. Yeah, yeah. Uh... And then there, you know, there, uh, after the earnings, there's always the Q and A with a, a couple of the business leaders, and uh, I'm always looking for tidbits there. And uh, one uh, question that that Amazon got asked is about uh, ads on the Alexa platform, and I was uh, happy to see their um, uh, invest the the guy that leads investor relations for Amazon uh, say that that uh, they they have no plans to. Uh, put any ads on the Alexa platform and that they exclusively want to focus on it being a, a good customer experience. So, um, uh, not shocking, but, but, uh, uh, good to affirm that, that they're not going there. The, uh, and then, you know, kind of following up on, on, uh, the analysis of, of the quarter, uh, I think, you know, people are definitely looking at that, uh, international softness, and I, you called out like that they lapped their Souk um, acquisition, so that that probably had a material impact on on uh, international growth. And then there's this big Indian holiday uh, that's right on the cusp of uh, a shopping holiday that's right on the cusp of Q3 and Q4. So uh, last year it was in Q4, this year it's in Q3, and so their Q their comps. Um, year over year, uh, like our, our challenge because the holiday was in in uh, one year and not the other. Um, but one piece of speculation uh, is, you know, there's a report out there estimating the size of the prime membership, um, and uh, that they they're reporting that that uh, growth in prime is dramatically slowing down, which is not a huge surprise. Uh, you know, they, Amazon themselves have said they have over a hundred million. Uh, prime households, and uh, that's a global number, but in North America, there's only like 120 or 140 million households, depending on how you count. So it it, it has to be getting harder for Amazon to acquire more prime households. Um, and if it is, in fact, true that they're acquiring less households, then that certainly would have an effect on, on future quarters growth. So that's going to be an interesting thing to watch. Yeah. Yeah. Once you've kind of have every household on prime, then it becomes a, a you know, saturation game. Um, That'll be interesting to see. The um, one thing on the fourth quarter guide that you mentioned is uh, it was a little soft on revenue, um, but but about eight percent off on the profit side. Uh, and Amazon's not being specific about it, but one thing they did announce that we haven't covered on the show is they are uh, increasing everyone's wage for warehouse workers to fifteen dollars. Uh, There's a lot of controversy around this, so so this was a reaction to. Uh, a lot of the politics going on. Bernie Sanders has been kind of lighting them up. Uh, you know, they use a lot of these kind of, uh, uh, you know, kind of what I think as an entrepreneur, kind of silly things where they'll take Jeff Bezos's net worth and divide it by 365. And they'll say that that's how much he makes a day or something, uh, which is, you know, forgets the 20 years where he, you know, uh, took tons of risks building Amazon, but whatever, uh, I digress. And um, uh, there, there is a point there that there's a large disparity between his, you know, the top echelons of Amazon's income, the warehouse workers. So Amazon straightened that out by uh, bumping everyone up to $15 an hour. Um, and in doing so, they get rid of some stock options and some other things that they, I don't think, felt like the hourly folks were valuing. And then they got, you know, they can't win. So then a lot of people trashed them over getting rid of those things. So uh, that being said, it is a pretty material increase in comp to literally hundreds of thousands of employees. So um, a lot of speculation that, that the big headwind on the bottom line going into fourth quarter is going to be uh, that, that wage increase for warehouse workers. 
Yeah, and I, I think they were specifically asked if that was going to have a material impact, and Amazon uh, didn't comment on the exact impact of the wage increase. Um, but that that was a pretty, like, from my view, a pretty savvy move. Um, you know, there's been this trend in retail for a while. Uh, you know, retailers are really competing for talent. Um, you know, unemployment is low, so it it's hard to get people, and we've seen... Uh, both Target and Walmart like dramatically increase their starting wages in an effort to improve the quality of the workforce. Um, and then, you know, Amazon came in and leapfrogged them. And, and Amazon is competing for for people at this point to fill those fulfillment centers. And so that uh, like there, I'm sure there was some political advantage uh, uh, in doing that. Like, uh, you know, I do think in a lot of ways it's the right thing to do, uh, obviously, for the employees. Um but it also just is a capitalistic thing to do in terms of making sure that you get the input, the workforce that you need in this competitive environment. So be interesting to see even what economic impact it has. Um, but the other question that they got about uh, the financial impact in, uh, th- that's going to happen in Q4 is the U.S. postal rate increase that is coming. Um, and Amazon was pretty clear that they did not feel that the postal increase was going to materially affect them. Um, And to me, this is another one of these sort of funny ironies um, where, uh, you know, the the president that appears to have some animosity (laughs) towards Jeff Bezos, uh, you know, adopts an issue uh, and then some some legislation gets passed, uh, like the sales tax, uh, uh, Supreme Court ruling, or now this postal rate. um, And you know, like he superficially is tweeting that this is going to have some negative impact on Amazon. Amazon uh, has more ways to deliver packages than everyone else. They have more of their own package delivery. And so the operations folks at Amazon are like, no, we're just going to be smarter about which of our delivery vehicles we use. And we think we're going to be able to absorb that rate increase. And of course, no other retailer has those levers to pull. And so the like the uh, postal rates going up actually is a competitive advantage for Amazon versus the rest of the market um, that doesn't deliver 15% of their own packages like Amazon does. Yeah, to that vein, a um, couple little tidbits. So uh, there's a lot of video surfacing of Amazon ordered something like twenty to 40,000 prime delivery vans. Um, and these are really nice. They're these Mercedes Sprinters. And I don't know about you in Chicago, but in the research triangle of the Raleigh-Durham area, I probably see four or five of those a day right now. Um, and it started where they were going to large corporations. So, uh, you know, we're, we're there a lot uh, with my company Spiffy and, you know, folks are reporting to me, oh, it's Cisco and Citrix and MetLife and all these large employers. They're seeing the, the Amazon bands go there a couple times a day. Uh, and then now it seems to be going into kind of large prime density neighborhoods. Uh, and these are, this is kind of replicating the FedEx ground model. So FedEx ground, uh, a lot of people not may not realize this, but FedEx Air is W two employees. FedEx ground is a ten ninety nine network of local entrepreneurs that are given they license the FedEx brand and they operate ground uh, on be, on behalf of uh, you know, for FedEx, but they're local businesses. Um, so Amazon is a uh, you know kind of started this mix of some fulfillment center employees are driving these things. And I've talked to several of them and the ones I've talked to are, are full on Amazon employees, but then a lot of them also are these 1099s where Amazon will set you up in your own little 1099 delivery business. They'll even kind of guarantee you um, a certain number of packages and effectively a dollar per package. And they'll, they'll kind of guarantee you revenue if you do this. Um, so, so uh, to your point, pretty fascinating and Amazon is really ramping that up. Yeah. Uh, a couple of other pieces of Amazon news, not necessarily related to earnings, uh, but Amazon did launch a new uh, credit card in partnership with Amex this, uh, I think maybe last week, that was targeted at small businesses. Um, and it has some interesting features. It's a no-fee Amex, so it's the first time uh, you, you can get a, a free Amex. Um, and uh, they sort of have variable terms for each purchase that you can select um, at the time of purchase in Amazon. So that, so there's a, a unique user interface in Amazon for purchases that are uh, completed with this credit card. And so you can say, for example, that I want to use my Amazon reward points to pay for this purchase, 
Or you can say, I'm going to uh, uh, pay back this credit card charge in the next 30 days, and you get 5% back for doing that. Or you can select these 90-day terms um, and you know take 90 days to pay for the purchase. So kind of a an interesting, tighter integration between uh, Amazon and Amex. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm always interested in those kinds of tie-ins because, you know, payment is such a, uh, a, a potential competitive advantage in the e-commerce space. So it's interesting to see Amazon doing that. Um, I mentioned earlier that we now have three Go stores in Chicago. We also had the, uh, the first Go store open in San Francisco this week. So these things are rapidly opening. Um, side note, kudos to the Amazon real estate team. They've actually done a phenomenal job of hiding a lot of these stores from the media, which is, you know, uh, carefully, <laughs> carefully watching property managers to figure out where all these stores are. And I, I noticed Amazon's done a pretty good job of surprising us all with some of these openings. Um, I had an interesting little debate with some folks on Twitter this week. Um, you know, as, as it seems clear that they're opening a, a network of these stores and there is that Bloomberg report that they're going to have a 3000 of these ghost stores by 2022, uh, uh, Doug Stevens, uh, uh, a, uh, a retail author and, and subject matter expert, uh, made a tweet saying, uh, you know, that 7-Eleven's now on the clock. They're going to get dramatically uh, disrupted by Amazon and they're really not ready for it. And I sort of made a smart aleck re- uh, reply, uh, you know, uh, while I never would tell anyone not to worry about Amazon, I'm not sure that first and foremost, Amazon Go is likely to affect 7-Eleven. I said that, uh, you know, probably Predamagir or Obopan um, are at much more risk from the Amazon Go store than 7-Eleven is. And my contention is the Go store is really a restaurant, um, you know, whose main mission is to uh, get you lunch when you only have a half hour lunch break um, and that it's it's not really a competitor to a traditional convenience store. And and uh, so some folks on Twitter jumped in and we had a we had a good, healthy debate about that. And obviously, at the end, everyone agreed I'm right. <laughs> or they got blocked. Yeah. Yeah. Or um, I, I, I just screened them. Exactly. Uh, side note, uh, top three categories at 7-Eleven. 7-Eleven sells a ton of gas, which Amazon Go stores don't sell yet. Um 7-Eleven sells a lot of tobacco, which Amazon doesn't sell uh, at all. And then uh, they sell a lot of alcohol, which Amazon Go only sells in one store in Seattle. Um, so, you know, while food is in a, a growing part of 7-Eleven's business, it's not even a top three category. And it's it's like 95% of the SKUs in this, this Go store. So that's why I think Go is much more of a restaurant than a traditional convenience store. Yeah, one uh, one last reminder is it's been a little over a year since Amazon announced their hunt for HQ2. So uh, a lot of speculation is that we should be hearing about that here in the fourth quarter. Um, Amazon said it would take about a year. Uh, now, it, it's for, you know, this involves a lot of details and local governments and stuff. So I imagine they're not going to have to stick to this timeline. Uh, but there's we're seeing a ramp up of speculation around the HQ2 stuff. Uh, I'm kind of interested, you know, there's a lot going on in Chicago, not to pick on Chicago. It's a great city. Uh, you know, it, it's just fascinating to me that, that they're for all the other stuff they've done, they kind of went Seattle, New York, uh, and then, uh, uh, Chicago. And now they're just really pouring it on in Chicago. I wonder if that's like a slight indication that maybe Chicago's kind of pulling into one of the top possible locations for HQ2. Yeah, it would be interesting. Uh, we, my wife and I were driving around town today, and there's a ton of cranes building condos. And my wife commented, "Like, do the the condo developers know something about Amazon that we don't know?" Um, but uh, well, I do think Chicago is a, a interesting market for Amazon, and you know, it's a good test market because it is, uh, it does uh, have a broad representative demographic. Um, I personally would be a little surprised uh, if it's here. But that being uh, said, uh, I suspect we're all going to know pretty soon. Yeah. Uh, and then you had surfaced a nursing little spat between Amazon and eBay you wanted to talk about. Oh, yeah. Uh, so eBay actually filed a lawsuit against Amazon, and it related to uh, Amazon potentially trying to steal top marketplace sellers from eBay. And uh, the reason there was a lawsuit is 
the allegation is that the way Amazon uh, was doing this is they uh, very systematically infiltrated a uh, private chat board for these t- uh, eBay sellers and created a bunch of fake personas and, you know, we're, we're reaching out and con and privately contacting sellers, um, through like a pretty sophisticated, uh, alleged, uh, hacking, uh, of this, this, uh, eBay communication platform. Um, and, uh, like, it, it seems like they have a fair amount of evidence that it, if true, it's a little surprising to me to, that someone in Amazon's position would do, you know, I, I, I would certainly presume it wasn't a, a corporate directive to do this, but that, you know, someone had enough autonomy to do this and can put off of that scale. It, it, it would be interesting. So uh, don't know what the real story is there, but it's going to be fun to watch the lawsuit play out as a, uh, an interested uh, observer. Cool. So that, that kind of wraps up our Amazon part of the show. And then uh, we had a lot of listeners uh, that were sad that we, we took a little break there. Um, so apologies for that. Uh, and then the two other topics that folks really wanted us to hit on uh, are Sears uh, and then this really big change to the UPU, um, which is squarely in your your wheelhouse, Jason. Um, so on the Sears side, uh, there was kind of two buckets of questions we got from listeners. Uh, one uh, was really, you know, so folks selling on the Sears marketplace, or or even this would apply, I guess, to vendors. You know, what what should they do? So Sears has entered Chapter Eleven bankruptcy. Uh, you know, uh, some percentage of the time companies come out of bankruptcy; other times they don't. Uh, and when they don't, they're they leave creditors sitting there, kind of holding the bag. And a lot of times, vendors. Uh, you know, even a marketplace seller would be considered a vendor. They're, they're left holding the bag. Um, and then the other thing, uh, so I'll, I'll tackle that one. And then the other one, Jason, was you know, an overall kind of read on what's this really mean for retail. So, so on the marketplace side, you know, the, my guidance would be uh, you know, it's all a risk tolerance question and, and a scale question. So if, you're, you know, if, if you did have a speed bump and you lost you know, usually these things have a trailing 30 day payment type cycle. Uh, you, you steers was material enough that you did lose 30 days of that cash because of a bankruptcy. Uh, if, if that is, you know, pretty material to your business, meaning it impacts it kind of 10 percent ish, I would start trimming my sales for selling on Sears and reduce that risk to sub 10%. Um, you know, so, so I think that's just a prudent thing from a risk management perspective when, when a company goes into bankruptcy to start limiting your risk uh, to the extent possible. Now, if you're someone that, that, you know, is super risk intolerant and, you know, just a 5% kind of a hit is going to bother you, uh, then, you know, it may be time to phase out that marketplace because, and, and see what happens with the chapter 11. You can always come back uh, when the risk is diminished. Um, so, so I would kind of, you know, figure out your risk tolerance on a spectrum of, Hey, I go bungee jumping off bridges uh, as a super someone that, that, eats risk for breakfast all the way to, I don't own stocks. I keep cash under my mattress um, kind of level and then apply that to, to your, your strategy for selling on Sears uh, and also put it through a filter of materiality is, is this more than kind of 10% of your business or not? Yeah, that seems like uh, totally sound advice. I can't believe you, you gave out my mattress strategy online though. Yeah, the, uh, we'll talk about uh, inflation some other time. Okay. okay. Uh, <laughs> and, actually, uh, you know, every risky. time one of these, re- uh, uh, a significant retailer goes under, there's always this question like, who's going to benefit from them going under? What What's the impact going to be on the rest of retail? Um, you know, Sears is still like a $10 billion a year retailer. Um, and so that, uh, to you know, to the, uh, assuming they don't emerge um, from the reorganization and and uh, retain a significant portion of their their uh, ten million dollar uh, revenue run rate. Um, a bunch of other retailers are going to benefit. Um, the thing I like to point out is Sears has already donated most of its market share to the rest of the market. So you know um, there there was a time when they were a forty billion dollar retailer. Um, and they've been slowly eroding since 2006, and they probably have donated 
over a hundred billion dollars in in share to other retailers um, over these last uh, twelve years or so, um, and so you know the the bulk of uh, the benefit of them going uh, out of business like has already paid off to other retailers, um, and you know there's a lot of analysis that goes into who's going to benefit most from these stores closing, and you know who has favorable. Uh, merchandising categories that are similar to Sears, who has uh, similar geography to Sears to benefit from the the specific store closures. Um, but in general, I think if you look at the macro trends, I, I sort of have this premise that we're really seeing a bifurcation of retail. And we're, we're essentially seeing a few huge aggregators that focus on selling every product that's available and doing so at a really low price and super efficiently. Um, and if that sounds familiar to you in North America, that's because I just described Amazon. Um, there would be a good argument that Walmart is also one of those aggregators that that's going to continue to do well. And in the future, we might have a duopoly of these two big, big aggregators. And then everyone else is, uh, you know, really focused on uh, selling curated assortments to specific um, target audiences and really selling exclusive products that you can't get from the big aggregators. Um, and so the, those big aggregators are in the best position to benefit when, um, you know, uh, someone else that used to win based on assortment and scale goes away. So like, obviously, uh, Amazon and Walmart are going to take a significant percent of that share that Sears loses. In Sears' specific case, uh, because a big uh, portion of their revenue is soft goods um, at a low price point, um, Kohl's is particularly well positioned to uh, to get a nice benefit from the Sears stores going away. And because appliances were a big chunk um, of Sears' revenue, uh, Best Buy is also in a position to get uh, – uh, a nice uh, lift from the 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 Sears market share loss. So I think those are the retailers we'll see benefit the most. Um, but you know, at this point, we're not losing the big one of the biggest retailers in America. We're losing a shadow that once was one of the biggest retailers in North America. So I, I don't think this is going to be a a, a title change um, in the retail landscape by by any means. I think you know it's more sad because of. Uh, the history of Sears and what a dominant position they once had and how important they were to the evolution of retail in North America. And quite frankly, in many ways, how important they were to the actual development of North America. Yeah. Interesting. So um, you're going to take all the mattress, all the money from under your mattress and put it in cold stock. It sounds like. Uh, that probably would be far from the worst investment I ever made. <laughs> We'll, we'll save that story for a future show. Um, okay, so that's uh, that's good perspective. Now, tell us about this whole Universal Postal Union Treaty. Yeah, and uh, what's going on there? So this is a very little known thing uh, that suddenly is getting a lot of ink. Um, so you know, back in 1874 uh, at the Treaty of Bern, um, we uh, the world established this thing called the Universal Postal Union. Uh, it later got rolled into the uh, to be sort of a subsidiary of the United Nations. And then the idea of this postal treaty was that every country would agree to uniform rates for postal delivery. So when you're in France and you want to mail something to Germany, um, you you could know in advance what the cost would be to mail that, um, and the cost ought to be uh, the same for mailing uh, between every country. Um, and each uh, because that mail requires the cooperation of of at least two postal services, the one that picks up the package from you. Uh, and hands it to that that foreign country, um, and then that terminal country, the the country that gets it uh, and has to deliver it. Uh, they uh, their handling of that package. The treaty um, agreed on how those two postal entities would share the the rates for that shipment, and they agreed that that the international shipments would get equal tri- treatment with domestic uh, shipments. So if the uh, if the terminating country, um, you know, couldn't, for example, deliver international posts much slower um, or less reliably or with less tracking or these kinds of things, um, 
And so it, it sort of made it very easy and possible for, for people all over the world to mail things to each other and know in advance how, how much it was going to cost and have a uh, pretty good confidence that it was going to get delivered. And then over time, this treaty added some other useful things. They added some standards like how big stamps should be. Uh, they added electronic data interchange so that the the postal could uh, interchanges could be more efficient. Um, and they added some you know things to catch fraud and crime and, and share databases and things like that. So so we've all have benefited for a long time from these this postal treaty. It's got 193 uh, uh, member countries in it now. Um, so so as far, I feel like that's that's good for the world. It's super important. And a lot of e-commerce, particularly cross-border e-commerce, still gets delivered via the post office. So there's a lot of artists that make beautiful art here in the U.S., and they sell it to people in Europe. And the primary way they deliver that is they mail it via a post. Uh, a post. Um, so the one... Uh, Sort of real challenge is uh, that there was a clause built into this postal treaty that essentially said um, developing nations would get charged less terminal fees. And so what that essentially said is uh, more developing poorer countries um, would uh, not have to pay as much to have their their post delivered by richer countries. And so uh, if you're in one of these more developed countries, uh, you are obliged to accept packages at a lower cost from a developing country. And if you lost money delivering that, the way you would have to make up that money is by charging the people in your home market more for postage. Um, and like, there's probably a good argument that 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 mechanism for developing countries was probably fair and had some benefits and made it easier for more countries to participate in the treaty, uh, comma, one of those countries that was flagged as a developing country was China. Um, and the treaty is super slow and it takes them a long time to change. Like, I, I think there's not a good argument that China should still be considered a developing economy for purposes of, of this treaty, but but they were. And so what that essentially meant is that a seller in China could sell something on Amazon to, to a buyer in the U.S., um, and they could very cost-effectively uh, mail that, that good via post. Um, and frankly, it was much cheaper to send something from Shanghai to San Francisco than it was to send something from Chicago to San Francisco. And ironically, that, that seller in Chicago selling to San Francisco was having to pay a higher postal rate to subsidize uh, that cheap delivery from that Chinese seller. So it created this really unfair situation where uh, Chinese sellers had a much uh, lower cost of postal uh, delivery for cross-border trade than did, uh, for example, American companies. And so a lot of people felt that was unfair. Um, and so now the Trump administration is threatening to pull out of the treaty um, because of that that fundamental unfairness, which I frankly totally agree is unfair. The problem is, if we do in fact pull out of the treaty, what that also means is that all those sellers in the U.S. that want to ship via post anywhere else in the world can only do it if the United States negotiates an individual treaty with the country you want to ship your goods to. So that, that potentially would mean we need 193 postal treaties that we have to negotiate one-on-one -on -one with each of these countries Many of those countries we don't have an ambassador with right now. So, like, it, it would be a big challenge. And so, while I think pulling out of the UPU fixes this, this fairness imbalance with China, it's going to create a bunch of new headaches for uh, people in the U.S. that do cross-border trade. And so, like, you know, frankly, the best outcome here and what, what I think a lot of us hope is the case is merely by threatening to pull out of the UPU, we could put pressure on the the uh, governing bodies of the UPU to sort of fix this this China gap um, to keep us in the treaty. And so hopefully this is just some saber rattling. It, it uh, causes them to rethink the developing nation clause and we stay in the treaty. But if we do pull out, uh, that'll be you know good news for some people that are competing with China, but it, it'll be bad news for a bunch of other uh, U.S.-based sellers. Yeah, uh, one of the companies that seems potentially most impacted is Wish. So the bulk of Wish's uh, marketplace uh, are 
you know, Chinese sellers, uh, you know, super value oriented. So they're not using FedEx or anything like that. Um, and they're, they are using the postal system. Uh, and the Wish founder was actually kind of saying uh, to your earlier point about it, it was kind of ironic that by raising the postal rates, it actually kind of helps Amazon versus other retailers. That, that this is another interesting kind of example where this, this could actually oddly benefit Amazon um, because you know now there won't be the, those goods from Wish that you're competing with. Amazon has implemented a system where they bring products over from China on boats called Dragon Boat. So it'll, I think it, a lot of their goods, they skirt this, this, this system. Uh, if I understand how that works correctly. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. And this is, again, uh, the biggest sellers actually have more options, right? And so even, and I, I don't know how true this actually is, but even, Wish claims that, hey, this isn't going to uh, be, you know, um, hugely material to us because we are selling enough stuff from China to the U.S. that we can be a cost-effective freight forwarder. So we can put all those small packages on our own boats, uh, bring containers over here, and then dump them in the U.S. postal system to be delivered uh, domestically and not have international, right? And because we're a big seller, we have enough volume to aggregate to do that, Um Whereas, you know, smaller sellers wouldn't wouldn't have that option. So remains to be seen whether Wish will be able to follow through on that if we pull out of the UPU treaty. But like certainly to your point, Amazon's already doing that. Um, and there was uh, I think Jason Delray did an interview with the, the CEO of Wish and he had a funny comment like when the. The diplomats talk about pulling out of the UPU. One of the, the reasons they cite is it's totally unfair. The U.S. Post Office is losing $300 million on uh, on postage as a result of this deal. And the Wish CEO offered to pay it. <laughs> He's like, if that's your big grievance, I'll write you a check. Um, and obviously, like, that's not the the total cost that's lost from from this, this uh, imbalance. But it, I thought it was a funny, snide remark. So hearing you describe it, it almost could be an eBay problem because, again, eBay benefits from a lot of this stuff, too. So it'll be interesting to watch that. Um, and then um, in the eBay world, they talk a lot about ePacket. Do you know what that is and if it's impacted by this? Yeah. Uh, I like So that is a specific postal um, product. Uh, and it um, if I'm remembering right, uh, it's indexed to the upu rates but it's not actually governed by the upu rate so it would be possible for us to change the e-packet rates without pulling out of upu um but it would require the u.s post office to change uh some of their their pricing policies and i think that might require a vote of congress if i'm if i'm not mistaken so it's a a slightly special case but it basically is indexed to the rest of this problem um, so it's all it's all going to be interesting to watch. Uh, like I never thought I would get a chance to talk so much about the nuances of uh, international postage systems. I think my my father in law, the stamp collector, would really enjoy it. <laughs> um, and that's going to be a great place to wrap it because it's happened again. We've used up all our allotted time, uh, as always. If we got anything wrong or you have further questions or want to discuss anything from today's show, we'd love it if you jump on Facebook and uh, leave us a comment. We'll try to reply right away. Um, as always, if you benefited from this show, uh, now would be a great time to jump over to iTunes and give us that five-star review. Uh, if you hated today's show, uh, Scott's uh, personal uh, cell phone number will be in the show notes so you can give him a call and let him know. Absolutely. Look forward to hearing from everybody. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Have a great week. And until next time, happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com.